Hello and welcome to the Maths Communications 2020 podcast, a series of podcasts where we explore various archives and collections. My name is Faith Williams and I'm joined today by Leonie Patterson, archivist for the Royal Botanic Gardens, Edinburgh. Leonie, would you like to introduce yourself and talk about how you came to be where you are? Yep, Hi, my name is, as, as you said, it's Leonie Patterson. I've been working uh, at the Botanic Garden in the library for over 20 years now, which is, which is quite a thought. I, I started in the library um, as the administrator looking after the records and, and the finances but because I had an interest in history I come from um, an archaeological background so I'd worked in the museum before uh, they thought I think with good reason that, that I'd be quite interested in, in moving into the archives which is what happened I started taking on more and more archival inquiries and slowly that became a bigger part of my job and I eventually took the postgraduate course at, um, in archives management from Dundee University doing the, the part-time distance learning course there, and I've got the qualification now. Unfortunately, at that time, that was when I started, um, have, had my children and went part-time, so I ended up with, with a lot of the theory and, and less time to actually put it into practice, because um, I'm the first archivist at the Botanic Garden, so we have this, this collection of records that um, hasn't been curated to archival standards before, so to actually go in and, and tackle this collection is, is quite an undertaking, but um, uh, a work in progress, but yeah, fascinating all the same. How big is your collection then? It's reasonably big. I think it's, it's, it's maybe not as big as it could be. I mean, we've um, been administered by uh, government bodies and by, uh, by the parliament throughout our history. So it's not a collection that goes right back to our beginnings, uh, which is 350 years ago now in uh, 1670. Um, so it's, it's still quite a, a recent collection, um, but it, it takes up uh, a medium-sized room of, of, um, of rolling stack shelving uh, and extends into other parts of the library. So I think for one person part-time, it's, it's big enough, I think. <laughs> it's it's yeah, big enough. How do you spend an average day then? Oh, at the moment, I'm not going to admit how I spend an average day when I'm still working from home, uh, what with the, the coronavirus uh, crisis still, still underway. But uh, usually, you sort of plan what you're going to do when you come in, and then most of it being part-time, just four hours a day, is spent dealing with uh, emails and inquiries and just um, sort of keeping up to date with what's going on. Uh, and a lot of, like say, um, inquiries um, coming through or, or messages coming through on email. So we spend a bit of time doing that and um, putting stuff together maybe for tours and that sort of thing. And working the short days, we find that by the time you've done that, uh, the other stuff like large cataloging jobs uh, tend to take a bit of a back seat. So the rest of the day might be spent just keeping on top of what's coming in, uh, just making sure I know what's coming in and, and finding places to put it. What type so of material do you deal with then? Sorry? What type of material do you deal with? Ooh, the archives, as, as was, um, the usual suspects, I get, uh, most of it's letters, correspondence, uh, mostly going back to the Victorian period. Uh, a lot of uh, the written words, sort of field books and manuscripts, um, um, material from the plant collectors. Uh, it's quite good. So letters coming to and fro from the garden. We have the, um, the odd object. And that can include things like um, uh, the ballot box that's associated with the Botanical Society of Scotland or the telescope that's associated with the plant collector David Douglas. Apparently it was found uh, next to his body in the bull pit. He was um, found dead in a bull pit in this um, 
in Hawaii on one of his plant collecting expeditions in the 1850s and this telescope was found with him and that has found its way into our archive. We've got plant models that we used for, for teaching. Um, we have illustrations as well like um, uh, botanical artwork, there's, there's, there's a lot of that. Uh, my favourite thing I think has to be the um, photographic material, that sort of thing, the photographs uh, both from the, the plant collectors and uh, covering the, the history of, of the of the garden going back to on every sort of format from glass plate negatives through to through to polaroids you're 250 no 350 years old this year right yes this is our, our, our obviously centenary there's another word for it isn't it yes it was a, a big year this year for um looking backwards and looking forwards over our 350s with a, a lot of these celebrations having to be put on hold unfortunately were there any um, projects that you had in the pipeline pool or um, society uh, that you've tied in with or anything like that? God, we're associated with the Botanical Society of Scotland. We hold their archives and other societies like the Scottish Rock Garden Club. We hold um, their papers. Who accesses the collection for the most part and what are they looking for? Usually um, access to the collection is to be members of staff. Uh, looking for historic details, uh, apart, maybe the part of the garden that they're working in or the specific plant that they might be working on. Um, and you'll get the same sort of inquiries from researchers as well. So it might be people looking about the, let's say, the history of a certain plant. When did it first arrive in this country? Uh, that type of thing. We get a lot of um, people looking into people, which is what I find more interesting. I don't come from a, a plant background, but there is, uh, I was quite surprised how, how much the people actually grab me the, the sort of people that worked in the garden or, or looked after the garden or who were in charge of the garden or were associated with the garden so we get a lot of people uh researching their papers that sort of thing genealogical inquiries of people whose relatives worked in the garden looking for any information we might have on them uh, that sort of thing we also do um run the odd course for students we're associated with some of the courses at uh, edinburgh university geography department um, run a course on geography in the archives. So uh, we have students coming in, our own students, of course, uh, Botanic Gardens runs a, a number of different courses. So we'll have um, students from those courses. But mostly, I think, an awful lot of time is taken up um, with, I suppose, the casual visitor, if that's the right word. So we do a lot of tours um, and talks for garden societies uh, or clubs or history societies, and a lot of people coming into the garden as well. Um, uh, who are maybe on conferences or again just just local interest uh, or, or local history groups or other archivists who, who come in and we'll have these tours that we put together depending on what they're interested in uh, so just you know, with, with the COVID crisis as well I suppose there'll be um, less of that in the future I think we'll have gonna have to find different ways of, of disseminating information now I, I guess I'll have to um, yes get more associated with the digital and, and doing things online which is a, a steep learning curve what do you have available for digital viewing at the moment? From the archives, not a huge amount. Um, we're looking at digitising some of the, uh, the rare books in the collection and a lot of those have been digitised or sometimes if um, the book has been digitised by another organisation we'll link into that. Archives wise, we think we felt it was more important to get the collection properly catalogued first. And that's not happened. It's been catalogued to uh, collection level, 
Um, but the um, to actually go down into um, um, uh, more detailed lists, we haven't got that. We felt it's probably more important to have that done first before we do any huge digitization projects. What we find and what's happening now is that um, objects will be scanned when, as and when we need them. So we've got little bits here and little bits there and we can obviously do things digitally if people ask. And that tends to be us because it's faster what we usually do. If people are looking for images, we'll scan them and send them. It would be nice to actually just have a, uh, a proper program of of um, getting things catalogued, numbered and, and digitised and we're working on that. That's I think going to be a big thing going forward certainly. So to improve the cataloguing of the collection would be good and 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 then get things digitized i think would be good there's, there's projects that have been um gone on with uh, uh jstor i think it is getting some of the plant collectors letters digitized but again i think we've done that in slightly the wrong order we've, uh, we've done some scanning first and now we're looking at cataloging and um and you know it's, it's not the way to do it i think cataloging first and then and then get things made, made available. But uh, some of our glass plate negative collections have been scanned. Um, and a lot of the, uh, um, the George Forrest plant collecting, he, uh, he was a plant collector who collected in China between 1904 and, and 1932. A lot of his glass plate negatives have been uh, digitized, partly um, not necessarily as, to make them available, but that will be the end result, we hope. But as, as a uh, a protection measure as well, actually, just as a, as a backup, I think, to, to get some of the older collections like the glass pit negatives digitized, I think would be incredible. We've got a huge collection uh, in our basement of glass pit negatives that were taken in the gardens, so garden shots, plant views, and portraits that have been taken from the, oh, from the 1890s through to the 1915. That's a massive collection of, of glass plate that would be incredible to get that done, but that's a huge. A huge job for someone. You, the Royal Botanic Gardens are obviously a tourist attraction as well, but do you, as an archive, get a lot of interest from foreign parties or is it mainly Scottish or UK-based people? We do get a lot of interest from, from foreign parties. Usually delegations that are visiting the garden will usually be taken on some sort of tour, whether it's around the garden, and the archives will usually come into that. Uh, quite often with our links to China, thanks to the, the plant collector George Forrest, we will often get um, delegations from Chinese institutions or, or from, the, uh, um, from the diplomats uh, that are here. And to be able to get some of the Chinese collections out is, is yeah, always good. So that tends to be the main one for me. That's the collection that I've concentrated on. So that's good. And I think that's something we need to work on more in the future as well, actually building up more of these links. We're talking a lot about decolonizing archives at the moment. And that's a big subject and about time too, I think that we're talking more about it and that we've, we've got plant collectors that have been going out to different countries, collecting plants and bringing them back here with very little acknowledgement I think of the help that we got from the people that were actually in those countries will find um, actually quite a colonial view so the, the Europeans will be mentioned and, and credited but very we've got so many Chinese collectors that would have helped George Forrest but we just don't know their names and we don't know anything about them so it's trying to think of ways now how we can give back to these countries and I think to be able to to share the material that we've got, I mean, a duplicate set of the herbarium specimens, that's the dried plants that the plant collector would have been collecting in order for the scientists to be able to study and name the plants. So a, a duplicate set of those have gone back to Kunming 
in Yunnan for, from the George Forest collection. But to be able to do the same thing with the archives, to be able to take copies of the letters and be able to make them available in, in China so that people there can actually see their own history and, and be able to study it and, and, and link with us through that, I think would be amazing as well. So you've mentioned that you are concentrating on cataloguing the backlog because it's so important to know what you've, you've actually got, but would you yes. say are there are any particular challenges that come with managing this particular archive? For me at the moment, the challenge is actually, it's, it's what you can do from home, having I mean, to work from home, that's a, a big challenge at the moment. And there's opportunities there as well. I suppose, isn't there? At the start, you think, oh my goodness, what am I going to, what can I do? And, and part of the problem I found, especially when we have a lot of volunteers actually that, that, that work in, in, in the archives and they're producing a lot of lists, but it's actually finding the time to actually do anything with those lists. So that um, has been a big challenge in the past. And that's something that I've been able to start working on, which is brilliant because that will um, um, add a lot to the, the cataloging. Uh, and then, of course, when we all went on furlough, there was a big challenge of suddenly having to stop doing all that and work out what we're going to uh, do with the archive at that point, which is, which is nothing. Now the challenge, of course, is how do we open up the archive now in a way that's safe for users and safe for researchers and safe for us as well. So that's our, our next big challenge, I think, and, and making things more available digitally. But I mean, back in normal times, the big challenge I had, and I think everything relates back to time, doesn't it? The big challenge I had was time management when you've only got four hours a day and you come in and a lot of time is spent with your email and with inquiries or maybe putting a tour together the big challenge was just not being able to find the time to do these uh, large cataloging projects or to, to make sense I suppose of a lot of the lists that we've got and put the, the two things together that's the challenge I suppose we're working from home as well it's I can do a lot of work on this but you can't really produce a catalogue unless you've actually got physical access to the collections so now going forward that's for me is, is, is the challenge is trying to, sometimes you feel maybe we've not got enough time. If, if I'm only gonna say maybe um, have a limited time actually working with the collections, it's the challenge of say being more firm, I think, and more strict with my time and saying, right, I'm gonna, rather than coming and say, I'm gonna do this, that and the other, and then you find it goes out the window as soon as you open your email or someone turns up at your desk with a question or a, a big box of stuff that they want to donate to the archives. It's to be able to actually say, right, no, if I'm gonna come in to do, a, B, and C, then A, B, and C is what I'm going to have to do. Get it done, use my time really effectively, and be able to take something home that I will then be able to work on from home as well. And actually, uh, for once, I actually feel that I'm actually getting something achieved would be quite good. And to actually, all these things that we've been talking about doing over the last few years, that just because of just day to day things, it just doesn't get done. To actually get these things done now and, and get them done properly and get them out there would be good and, and time management comes back to everything so I'm thinking about this question what the challenge is for me it's it's things like um, collecting in the future and the records management side of it I really love some of our collections and that we have um, correspondence collections relating to the Regis Keepers it's another word for the director of the organization we have their letters uh, going over years we've got um, a letter from Charles Darwin, for example, um, to, uh, writing to a religious keeper asking him to recommend a nurseryman in Edinburgh that can supply him with coloured uh, primroses so he can do some of his experiments with them. And to be able to actually pick up that letter and look at it and, and, and show people something like that is incredible. Now that we're all emailing, I just think we have religious keepers now that are, are retiring and we, we haven't 
you know, nothing's coming into the archives because it's all all virtual and we need to come up with a solution with that. And there's no reason why we can't come up with a solution for that. It's time. It's just finding the time to work out what that is. I think everything comes back to time management. That's the big challenge for me and, and just using it more effectively to get things what, done. What are your hopes for the future? Would you want, as you say, time? Would you want more... <laughs> staff or would you like to expand the collection in a certain direction or have you got a particular project in mind oh there's so many different things i think i think i get so easily distracted which is part of my problem as well you go in and you oh i could do this and i could do that to, to get everything done would be quite nice something i keep seeing is it's on a purely shallow uh level as it were i'd, I'd love the archive to look better if you see what I mean you know when you watch tv programs um with researchers setting archives who do you think you are or um um a, a program about researching your your housing get researchers and, and historians sitting in these archives with these incredible looking shells with all these identical boxes all of them beautifully labeled I find myself thinking I'd love an archive that I could take a, a tv film crew into would be would be nice, that would be lovely. I even have the space to do that would be fantastic. Something that's really organized and just works really well. But I think that's, like I say, it's on quite a, a vain, shallow level, I suppose. It's kind of um, a way of looking at it. It's maybe it's like having a really nice icing on your cake. What I really want for the archives is just to have a better cake, you have better cake mix, if you see what I mean. So um, to have everything better catalogued, um, uh, in more detail so that um, it's a catch-22 isn't it you do sometimes find when you've got researchers coming in that you're having to spend quite a lot of time trying to work out what they want for their inquiry it would be quite nice for researchers to be able to, to interrogate the catalogue in such a way that they're able to come and tell me what they want for their inquiry so it's, it's like a catch-22 for me have more time to, to catalogue it to that level I have to spend less time doing the work for the researchers if you see what I mean so um so actually to have this time at the moment where things are a bit quieter to actually hopefully work on that and get that a lot better would be would be good and to come up with better workflows as well actually so for material coming in and and being accessioned and um appraised and listed and worked on to actually have the space uh, and um and yes maybe get more staff and more help to actually um uh, put these different workflows and all the different yeah, the path through the archives or to, to, to have more space and, and to be able to do that would be would be nice. So you've mentioned George Forrest, who I believe is a favourite of yours. But <laughs> what in your opinion is your archive's most interesting item? Oh, I, I've got so many different answers to this question. You know, when it's like asking what your favourite song is, sometimes it depends <laughs> what mood you're in on the day. So I suppose my favourite band, as it were, would be George Forrest. Um, he was the collection that actually um, really actually hooked me into the archives very much. It, it was it was an inquiry right back at the start. Uh, um, shortly after I joined the Botanic Gardens, I got an inquiry. Uh, it actually did, tags into something that's coming up recently as well. It was um, a man who had been at the village in China where Forrest had done a lot of his collecting from. He had spoken to a girl there who knew that her grandfather had worked for George Forrest and she wanted to know what information we held on her grandfather. And that got me into the archives and reading his letters. And I thought being a historian, coming from a historian background, that I knew how to research um, people. I suppose by looking at their obituaries or, or reading books about them, but to actually go in 
and read letters that were written a hundred years ago from this small village in, in, in Yunnan province in China and to actually get inside George Forrest's head and hear his thoughts and, and, and realize these men are not perfect, they're not these, um, these sort of amazing Goliaths as it were that walk on water, they're real living breathing human beings that have failures, that have upset, that have tantrums almost um, and have successes as well and to be able to sort of share that with him it really did feel as if he was actually still still there today writing these letters back today and even the language he uses I mean it could be in an email um, the way he wrote it just really grabbed me what I suppose is quite current about that is I couldn't find anything about this girl's grandfather and that's I suppose what alerted to me the fact that um, that there are voices in the archive that you can certainly hear loud and clear and there are some that you absolutely can't and it's looking now at how these voices have been silenced and, and what we can do about it so that for me I think this collection and the fact that it ticks so many boxes as well you can look at the environmental aspects of of the countryside the fact that it's shown in the photographs um, the letters are incredible the stories that you can pull out of the forest collection uh, are amazing and it looks at um, uh, stories that he's heard in China as well and you get some of the some of the politics will come through there's so many different things um, or boxes that, that collection takes so that I think will always be my favorite collection but there's certainly lots of other items that maybe don't get talked about as much but are equally as interesting maybe because they haven't got that visual impact they don't always come out on the tours so we've got things like um, the first female gardeners uh, at the garden and the it was seen as an experiment when we first employed women to do the gardening. This is back in 1897, I think it was, when we um, we took two female gardeners on, like I said, as an experiment. But oh, I just I just find this really interesting because I can see a big stussy um, arose over it and I can see both sides of the of the argument or the story. We expected them to dress as boys, essentially, to sort of wear knickerbockers or sort of, you know, three-quarter length trousers, to tuck all their hair under a cap and basically almost hide the fact that they were women and it's even the fact that we haven't even got any photographs of them we've got really nothing to sort of show for their time here as it, as it were um it was kept quite quiet and i think the reason for that is because they'd done a similar experiment in kew and i think when they found um that rumor started spreading that these ladies in knickerbockers apparently were working at kew there was such a huge fuss and um, kew was absolutely inundated with people trying to get in to see these these ladies gardening that it wasn't until they actually did dress them as boys that the fuss died down and these women were actually allowed to get on with their work so we went straight in with that attitude and the two women that were employed Lena Barker and Constance Hay Curry knew this but Constance Hay Curry refused to wear the boys outfit she felt it was important so that people could see that she was a woman could see that a woman could do this job and that there was no impediment there's no problem with a woman doing it but um I think when she said to the Regis Keeper at the time that she thought um, the fact that she would have to dress as a boy was a joke, she was at that point instantly dismissed, which is uh, seen as quite shocking now. But I think, again, not sort of supporting um, Isaac Bailey Balfour, the Regis Keeper, I think if one of his male gardeners had spoken back to him like that, he would probably have um, um, got the sack pretty quick as well. So it's a really interesting sort of argument when you can sort of see both sides of it. You can see the Regis Keeper's side. Though, why he had to keep it so quiet almost is, though having said that, I think um, once they sat Constance Curry, I think it did end up um, being debated in Parliament. So uh, I don't know if he was able to keep it that quiet at the end of the day, but I think we were, um, Isaac Bailey-Buff was, was seen to be the one in the right and and um, and, and off Constance um, 
went, but um, it would appear to actually, um, she ended up, I think, living on the other side of Canada. So she wasn't, um, she wasn't um, a sort of fragile uh, little girl as it were. She was, I think, very strong, very powerful woman. I can, I can quite see why she wanted to wear the dress. So that's a, um, a fabulous little collection that doesn't often come out, like I say, because there's no photographs attached to it. Or it's just a, a stack of paper. But my my favourite article, um, item in the collection, I know it would take me a long time to answer this, but it's, it's a dance programme. And I, I really love this. It was discovered at the back of the archives in a box of material that had to be discarded written on the side of it. So I can only imagine this got in there by mistake. A rolled up piece of paper that I unrolled and, and it was a, a dance programme. It turns out it was, was done in 1936. With all the dances that would be done at a guild dance, so it's the, the guild being the society uh, that was put together for members of staff because we had a, a system of probationer gardeners. You would come and you would work for three years in the garden, um, uh, get more qualified, get more training, and then you would move move on to as bigger and better jobs, I think, is is the idea. So the, the guild was, uh, was, was started so that all these people could keep in touch and they would have annual dances and, and whist rice and things like this. So all the dances that were, would be dancing right down the middle of the programme, but surrounding the dances are cartoons drawn by one of the probationer gardeners, a man called uh, Jock Clark, in 1936. And he's drawn cartoons of things and events that had happened to the gardeners uh, in the in the garden. They're, they're brilliant, just so well done. And I think it's the fact that a lot of these events I'd actually heard about anecdotally. People will come to you as the archivist and tell you stories about things that have happened. And one of them was... Um, Back in, I mean, the 1930s, they would have used horses instead of tractors. We know no tractors for the garden staff in those days. So horses were used um, to to help lug the plants around and, and you know carry the equipment around. And we had a bell uh, that used to be attached to the palm house in the garden, and it would signal the beginning and end of, of every day and when the breaks were. And apparently, this horse was well known for when the bell rang at the end of the day. This horse would go, regardless of what it was doing or what it, job it was involved with off back to the stables, it would go. And there's a cartoon in the corner of this dance programme. Obviously the horse in the distance with the trailer and things flying off it, disappearing off up the hill and all these gardeners chasing after him. And and in the other corner, there's um, it, it, it's um, men in a lecture theatre because uh, the, the probationer gardeners would have to attend uh, classes in the lecture theatre at the end of the day, uh, which must be now a, a terrible long day for them uh, to get their qualifications. And they're all sitting in this lecture theatre and this bag is making a noise and, and they're all embarrassed and looking at it. And this, this story uh, ended up being recounted in one of the, the Guild newsletters. I found that it was uh, one of the probationer gardeners was moving house and this was his last bag of, of, of stuff that was moving from one house to the other. And one of his friends thought it would be amusing. It had an alarm clock in the bag to set the alarm clock to go off in the middle of the lecture and then lock the bag, uh, which is exactly what happened. So to, to see this... Um, cartoon of that happening but well, my favorite bit is a, a gardener who has put a ladder up against the branch of a tree and has attempted to saw through the branch but he saw through the wrong side of it so when the branch comes off the ladder goes and he goes flying and just the way the whole thing is described is, is very amusing and it even um, suggests that when you land you land on your head so in order to save the shoe leather because I think the shoes were, uh, um, were provided by the botanic gardens I believe so if you went through your shoes too quickly questions were asked so to see that side of the garden's history that you will never see uh, published in an official book or a garden guide, but to see what the what what made the gardeners laugh or what was happening in the the garden with the alarm clocks and the 
and the, the men falling off trees when they've cut the wrong branch down or this horse that would disappear off up the hill was oh, just just brilliant to, to, to be able to see that and, and to touch it this this real piece of history little anecdotes like that are <laughs> best aren't they yes and that's that's for me it's it's um I suppose archives maybe have this impression of being a bit, maybe a bit dry or a bit dusty for you know the, the usual idea. Of course, they're not to see something like that. And I think when you do the tours and you're able to show something like that, it really sort of brings it alive for people as well. To actually, yeah, to actually have a link with those people that are, are no longer here is what was even better for me with the the with the dance program and the cartoonist, it occurred to me a wee while later as my brain put two and two together, that I'd had an inquiry from a lady in Canada asking about her father who had worked here. And it occurred to me that, that he had the same name. And I went and looked and thought, goodness, it's the same man. So to actually be able to email her and say, did your dad draw cartoons by any chance? And she says, oh yes, he did. Yes, he used to, um, especially when we were kids, he used to amuse us all the time with cartoons. So to be able to send her, a scan of this document and say, well, yes, look what's just turned up in the back of the archives was, yeah, just brilliant as well. To, just to be able to, you're touching history every day, I think. That's a fantastic story. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me today, Leone. It's been a real pleasure hearing about all the, the different stories that you have in your archive. Um, hopefully you'll be able to open again soon and everyone can see the illustration of Pavlov's horse. <laughs> yes, I will call it. So, see, maybe this is a way of finding out yeah, more ways of getting these things online as well. I think. So, yeah, time. Time is the thing, isn't it? Yeah, get it all catalogued so you know what you have and then work from there. It's all about organization, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for inviting me. <laughs>